In this episode of FieldLink, we're going to become being wise. Brad Hammes, product specialist from Iowa, will join us to talk about the importance of weed management in your soybean crop. Then Jody Lawrence will join us from Nashville with the latest commodity update. Plus, we'll travel to Washington, D.C. to visit with Troy Bradenkamp from the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy will share some insight about biofuels and how they are impacting our lives beyond the gas tank. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And welcome to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. Today joining us uh, is Brad Hammes. Brad is a product specialist based in Iowa. Brad, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me down. Well, Brad, uh, you know, it's wintertime across the United States. Most of the growers uh, in the soybean growing region are preparing for planting. It's kind of like Super Bowl time right now, right? We're here in January and February. Um, uh, Just like the NFL, most teams are, you know, showing up for those final games. They do a lot of pre-planning, though, to get there and a lot of training. Just like soybean growers, it's uh, that time of season to prepare for that final game. In this case, it'd be planting season. So, so Brad, as it relates to weed management, what types of pre-training do growers need to consider at this time of year? I think a lot of it just goes back to the basics. You know, in the football metaphor, we're talking blocking and tackling, making sure that we're doing the fundamental things as well as we can to get good results. And some of those fundamentals would be making sure that, that we have the right nozzles, that our equipment's all up to snuff, that, that everything's been cleaned out and ready to roll. Uh, and as we plan what we're going to do throughout the season or as we review that plan, you know, some of it's going to be to understand what are the weeds that I that I have to control this year. And it's probably not going to be a whole lot different year over year than, than what you normally would. Sure. But maybe think about them in a way of when are they going to emerge? You know, that's one of the things that, that when we start thinking about uh, trying to manage all the weeds in every application, that might not be necessary. Whereas, um, you know, one of the big examples that we have that we deal with across the Corn Belt is going to be the difference between giant ragweed and waterhemp. Where giant ragweed, being a large sheet of broadleaf, is one of the earliest weeds that's going to come out of our summer annuals. And we're going to have that early flush of it. But once we get through that early flush, we're pretty well done with giant ragweed. throughout the season, but you compare that to water hemp. And if you had a residual down for giant ragweed early in the season or or your management for for giant rag early in the season, by the time that uh, residual or whatever methods of control you had for that are are about done, that's when water hemp's really starting to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And so you can think about what are the weeds that I'm trying to manage at the different application times, and that can help you be a little bit more precise with what you're putting into that spray mix. And I think that's one of those things, uh, making sure your plan's realistic and trying to manage the right things at the right times and then doing all those cultural practices right along with that, your nozzles, your pressure, making sure that we're not trying to short on that. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, the goal, and that's always going to start with the end in mind, right? What's the goal that we're trying to do? It's that the easiest way to control is one that never comes up. Right. And so if we could just, if we could paint a perfect picture, we would have clean fields throughout the season. That post pass would really be more of a bare dirt, trying to keep things from coming up. Because especially some of the weeds, whether you're in the Corn Belt or elsewhere in the country, if you're trying to manage whether it's water hemp or palmer or kosher, a lot of those different types of weeds, it's about keeping them from coming up in the first place is really where you can get the the biggest results as far as good control out of those. Then I think once you get done with that, it's it's reviewing your plan and making sure that you have a good backup plan also. Right. You know, last year that had a lot to do with supply. Uh, we had a lot of a lot of challenges in the industry about just what's available, where is it, when is it, all that kind of all that kind of concern that we had last year. This year, you know, not perfect supply. I'm sure there's still going to be issues here and there. A couple allocations that might pop up or just, 
things in, in the wrong place for where it needs to be when a, a certain customer might want it. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. But I think one of the things you might we might want to plan for this year is what happens if the season doesn't accommodate us, mm-hmm. right? What happens if we we go out there and and we have our we get our pre down uh, appropriately ahead of planting, but then we get wet, right? And now we now our post timing might be out of out of whack from that weed development cycle. You know, what's our plan then? What what are our options that we have? You know, I just saw here recently too. There's new and different restrictions on application dates for dicamba products. Right. Right. So how does that factor into that? Could be one of those those conversations to certainly be having with your with your sales rep here ahead of planting to make sure that we are got all the all our our T's crossed and all our I's dotted as far as getting ready for the controllable things or the things we can plan for ahead of time. Right. And I think that's a really great point to talk about. You know. Planning, having plan A, plan B, and, and and every field is different. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution out there, and that's why it's really important to be connected with your Helena sales rep so that you can develop the best plan for that field because it's going to change from location to location, field to field, and heck, even field have, part of the field even. That field have a manure history. Is it in a, in a flood, you know, in a floodplain where you had water coming up and bringing wheat from other areas for sure? Lots yeah. of different reasons that different fields would have different challenges. And, and I like your approach about um, taking, considering, hey, plan A, if the environment treats us this way, boy, here's, here's our plan. But boy, if things hold off, we get delayed and we get wet, we get dry, what are we going to do then? It's, it's a lot easier to plan for that today. Just kind of like those football, going back to that scenario, you know, hey, if it's third down and short, what am I going to do? Or if it's third and long, what am I going to do? No different than a grower ought to really consider, hey, if it's wet, I need this plan. If it's dry, I need this plan. Yep. Here's the tendency of of this type of year, this type of season. I think we're what well, we're changing some of the large picture weather patterns out of a, out of a La Nina, maybe into an El Nino. You know, what, what are, what's that going to do for, for how that season might hit us in a given year? And what do we need to do to adapt to that? Well, and those are just, you know, really bean-wise strategies, right? How can we be smart in growing our soybean crop? Uh, Brad, you know, lots of chatter out there uh, about, you know, weed species, you know, moving into different parts of the country. And some, be, you know, the weed that is the challenge today wasn't even thought of or even an issue five, 10 years ago. Brad, are there any challenges that you're foreseeing as we look at 23 from a, I guess, a broad perspective in terms of weed challenges? Yeah, I think for a lot of what I deal with, it's, it's going to be the usual suspects. It's going to be a lot sure. of water hemp, lamb's quarter, uh, giant ragweed. I think the one thing that surprised me last year when I looked out across everything was grass. There was so much more grass coming through late than I was used to seeing. And, and that could have been supply issues, right? There's some, sure. some chemicals last year that we, we couldn't necessarily get enough of that would have done a, a good job on, on helping to manage that. But I think going back to some of those, especially the the weeds that germinate late or continue to have germination flushes throughout the season, one of the big things to maybe keep an eye on would be how is the early season going as far as soybean development and how am I getting close to canopy? You know, I, I think right. especially with that that timing on those pre-flowering applications when we're getting up into that late June, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges I think that we have a lot of times is that if if we have a delayed planting season, and now instead of planting, you know, some guys like to plant ahead of corn even, but if, if we're more planting late May, the last week of May, and even getting into June, man, those soybeans haven't had a whole lot of chance to grow before we get to that flowering application, that timing where we're getting to that late June, early July time period. Sure. And by that period, based on what that plant's doing developmentally, a lot of those labels become restrictive, mm-hmm. right? And so our options really start to get thin pretty fast. 
And I think that's one of the big challenges that we, but that's also a place where we can have a little bit of forethought or a little uh, management on the front side. As we get into the season, we understand better how that planning window goes. We're going to know what options are going to be most likely available to us by the time we're starting to get into that late vegetative application timing. Yeah, definitely a lot of different uh, uh, scenarios out there to plan for, and and it goes back to that planning phase. Um, You know, certainly, uh, you know, we can have a lot of different types of impacts on uh, poor weed management can certainly impact yield. Uh, uh, What kind of risks do you uh, kind of foresee this year that growers might face? Uh, Are there some products that we should be taking a look at to incorporate into our BeanWise program? You know, I think that the risk part of all that, and there's been a lot of research over the years that that has really drilled into quantifying. If you have this much percentage weed coverage, by the time you have plants at this stage, you're losing X percent of your bushels or X percent of your yield potential. And I think that's always been understood. When when Roundup in particular became really popular, it was a lot more common to, I'm just going to let all the weeds come up and then I'm going to spray them and take care of them. and, And didn't think about that convenience piece overcame you know, some of the yield potential that we were maybe losing. Some of the impact on the final yield. Exactly, because we just saw that great performance and and the beans didn't really suffer through it, uh, but we didn't think about what that is. And and one of the things that I started hearing about it a couple of years ago from some some extension specialists and university folks is they they call it dirty light. And that's something that I think we've known about for a long time, but to be able to quantify it more. And and what they mean by dirty light is the, the way that plants detect competition, really, because they, they compete with everything around them growing for sunlight. That's their main main bit of competition on that daily basis is how much sunlight am I getting? And I think we've all probably had instances of house plants and they get shaded around a corner and plants have amazing and, and very interesting growth habits to right. overcome some of those different sure. challenges, right? So one of the things they'll do is it's called etiolation. It's the stretching out of a plant to compete for sunlight, to get its leaves up high enough in the canopy to be getting that sunlight. Right. So some of the research they did around this to quantify it was to grow a plant in a column and then have weeds outside of that column. So there's no competition for water, no competition for nutrients, only competition for light. And it wasn't even that they were necessarily competing for light, but the way that plants measure light is not just what's coming down from them, but it's what's coming laterally at them. So the reason that we see plants is green, right, right. is because they reflect green light. Mm-hmm. That's the part of the visual spectrum that we get to see. They also reflect parts of the infrared spectrum, right? So they're reflecting parts of that heat light. And so if you have a bunch of plants around one of your crop plants, one of the ones we're trying to grow that are reflecting some of that infrared spectrum at it, it detects, oh my gosh, there's a lot of competition here. I need to put more resources into growing tall, which is going to weaken the plant in beans case. You know, we're going to have an increased risk, potentially risk, potentially a lodging right. later in the season. But everything that a plant does that isn't contributing to yield is taking away from yield, right? I think that's one of the big messages that I like to think about a lot of times with all crops is that really anytime a plant has to overcome stress, you know, there's an aspect certainly where a stress, if you're losing leaves, that's going to take away your, your sunlight factory of collecting that light and make it energy. Right. But every energy that every bit of energy a plant has to use, that's not just to make big seeds, more seeds, more yield, more bushels takes away from that, right? So when that plant now dedicates more of its energy to growing tall, that's less energy it has to eventually make grain. Right. 
it's, it's really kind of the silent yield killer in a lot of regards. It looks fine, but you know, what are we missing out on? Exactly. Especially when the whole crop is starting to grow at the same pace. Right. right. It's a lot easier to think to see in corn where you've got a stunning plant and you can visualize that. Whereas beans, you know, one area of the field might be depressed, but if you have a, even if it's a, a low level um, emergence of a lot of small weeds, they're all going to be contributing to that growth response of that plant of thinking there's a lot more competition around it and it has to overcome that competition. You know, Brad, we talked about the importance of getting out early, having a good weed management strategy. As a part of that strategy is also a good adjuvant program. Uh, what kind of products are out there that can help, you know, enhance uh, some of those herbicides that are going down early to ensure that we're getting the best performance or the best dollar out of our investment? Sure. And there's, there's a lot of different things to think about with adjuvants, right? I mean, every every different tank mix might have a different adjuvant that would really dial in the performance of that. And I think that, you know, once again, to cover the fundamentals first, sure. make sure we're conditioning our water. We don't want to be deactivating a herbicide before it even has a chance to leave a spray nozzle. Right. And that's the worst case scenario. We need to think about, are we putting things in there to help that herbicide active ingredient perform the way that it does? And once we have those bases covered, man, there's, I don't know if there's a better tool for that, especially that first pass, that pre-plant or, or early, you know, pre, uh, post-emergent application than, than what grounded would be. Okay. Right. And I think particularly in the conversation that we're having, you know, it's not just about starting clean, but it's about staying clean, right? We can, if we start out with a clean field, but we end up choked up with weeds, that's still not going to be a successful season. And I think, especially going back to that earlier, how we started this conversation out, what happens if right. that second pass gets messed up because of what the environment did for us or to us throughout the growing season? And that's where grounded really comes into play, where if if we're going to be really wet, which even in a dry year, if we're going to have moisture, it's typically going to be in the spring. Right. So if we're going to have moisture in that season, that's going to uh, basically shorten our window of residual control. Now, if we had, let's say we're going to do corn, beans, come back and spray post corn and then do post beans. Well, shoot, we might we might break an extra week, two weeks earlier than we normally would. And think about what two weeks of growth on water hemp might look like. Right. There aren't many many herbicides out there that are going to control water hemp that's had two weeks of, of unchecked growth. Yeah. And, and so that's one of the big insurance policies, I guess you could almost think of it with grounded, is I want to be able to predict much more accurately mm-hmm. when my post time post application timing needs to be. And that's really what that is. So you can have good ag- agronomic control of weeds that are appropriately sized for that post pass coming down, having a, a contact to take care of those and then residual to lay down and to really carry us out through canopy and throughout the entire season. So a product like Grounded really helps ensure that the herbicide or big investment into that crop, Grounded ensures that it helps it out maintaining, uh, you know, where we put that product and it stays there a little bit longer. Is that right? Yeah. And, and there's never, I, I, I get the question a lot. I hear a lot of concern sure. of, you know, especially if it's, a complicated or an intricate rotation of crops. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there can be some concern about, is this doing anything to any residual carryover or next right. season kind of applications? And that's not the case with grounded. Okay. Like what you had said is it keeps the herbicide where it needs to be to work longer. Right. Okay. Right. So in, and not even necessarily longer, but as long as it can. Sure. So I, I try not to think about it as I'm going to get an extra two weeks, but I'm going to save my full application. We're in a bad season if we have that break, more often than not, that's because we leached our herbicide too far into the soil. And especially with a small seed of broadleaf, like a water hemp or a, a palmer, yep. they can emerge right from the very top of that, so that layer of soil. 
they don't need to have a whole lot of depth. So you don't have to leach that herbicide very far before you have a, a layer of unprotected soil. And so when you can keep that, instead of if you were going to get, just to make a number, right, if you were going to get four or five weeks out of, if that was good, full residual right. control window, if you have an issue, that's because you only got three or four weeks. Right. Whereas if we put ground, we're much more likely to get that full five weeks full five, yeah. out of that control. And that then lets us be more predictive with when do I need to time my next application. Yeah, I think you said something really powerful there, though. It, it's it's really a pretty good insurance policy that we're you know, hedging, that we're going to get the full efficacy out of that herbicide that we're putting down early, you know, despite some of the environmentals. It's not a perfect science, but it certainly helps it out and spring, uh, strings out that uh, efficacy a little bit longer. And then, you know, as added bonuses, there's aspects of that grounded label that talk about doing better with uh, spray drift, right? Oh, you know, point. that's one of the extra benefits that we get out of ground. You get a better pattern going down, so you get more sure. consistent coverage on the soil. But then also, one of the questions I like to ask anybody who's mixing tanks is, are our tank mixes becoming more or less complicated? Mm-hmm. Right. Every year, it seems like we're putting more and more products into those tank mixes to do a better, more consistent, more complete job of both killing our weeds, but then what are we trying to add value to that crop? Are we putting a nutritional or whatever that might be in the sure. application if it's in season? And grounded can help with some of that compatibility. Okay. Right. Just the, the way that the, the formulation is, the emulsification in that product, helping to keep that spray mixture, all the components, given a little bit of an edge to keeping them all in good formulation so that you get a consistent spray mix going out and you don't have separation in your tank. Wow. Well, Brad Hammes, I certainly want to thank you for joining us today here on FieldLink and, and, and helping us become more bean-wise as we get ready for the 2023 planting season uh, and rolling those planters out to plant more soybeans this year. Thanks a lot, Bill. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Jody Lawrence flying solo today. Bill Smith is on assignment, but I wanted to be part of the podcast to give everybody an overview of some of the things going on in the markets this week. We're recording this on February 3rd. Unfortunately, the groundhog saw his shadows, so six more weeks of a very cold winter that uh, I was a part of the last two weeks when we were doing meetings in Indiana and Illinois. But as we turn the pages, it seems like the winter is going by awfully quickly uh, as we in, it get to the end of prepay season with everybody starting to look forward to some springtime temperatures coming within the next month to six weeks. Biggest thing going on right now is the markets can't seem to make up their mind on what direction they want to go. You got a lot of different conflicting pieces of information. It it rained some in Argentina and then it quit raining in Argentina. It switched back to dry and hot for about a week. So that initial break saw a pretty quick rally back, especially if you're looking at November beans, new crop prices in particular. You look at what's going on geopolitically. It looks like that Russia is upping their rhetoric in the war against Ukraine, that they will not back down and they are taking this, that they are still going to win and just with no timeline. You've got China just today flying a uh, a spy balloon over the United States and it flew over some specifically some military nuclear testing and apparently launch sites in Montana and in the northwest that really roiled the markets for a while and then come next uh, Wednesday the 8th of February the USDA app will be out with their monthly report with a lot of updates in particular since they did the 
U, since they did the U.S. crop backward look at 2022 on the final last month, they will primarily be updating their supply and demand, U.S. exports, things like that, which are not getting any better, although internal demand does seem to be improving to a point to help offset it. But the big thing is going to be what the USDA does with Argentina's crops in their drought and what they do with Brazil's crop that is going to be a record uh, by early estimates. It's about 10% harvested and uh, it's just a matter of time before just like in our fall when the cash markets get burdened with new crop harvest that the world markets are going to see a lot of bushels start coming out of South America. So several different factors going on. Fed raised rates again yesterday, which sent the, it sent the stock, mar- stock market up, actually, because of the way they said just some uh, discussion after the meeting. But interest rates still continue to climb, which is a big factor on farm because as everybody gets their operating lines and their loans together, they're, we're going to be paying at least double the interest rate that uh, on farm we did last year. So look at that pretty carefully because if you just do some simple math, if you have a million dollar line of credit that you use to operate over the course of the year with the bank and the extra 3% interest going from 3% last year to uh, 6% this year, that 3% is $30,000. So make sure that you are watching First of all, your interest expense to not let that become a burden on you, but also pay very close attention to all of your stored bushels because there are several different factors in play, the biggest one being the rising interest rates. If you have unpriced grain and you also uh, have loans that could be paid off by selling some or all of your grain. Take a hard look at that because uh, if you just save yourself $30,000 over the course of the year in interest, we can take that even smaller, take it down to a $350,000 loan. If you save yourself that 6% interest, that's $21,000, you're asking corn to rally 40 cents just to break even in that transaction. So you have to pay attention this year to how you're using your bins, how you're storing your grain, and taking advantage of prices to help offset the best you can the rising interest rates. So a lot of of things to consider there. Crude oil has fallen back down to that magic level of that $71 to $73 range where we expect the Department of Energy in the U.S. to be buying back barrels for the strategic reserve. So right now is a really good time to be buying, uh, looking at your fuel needs, uh, capping off your tanks, for the rest of the winter and certainly the spring for your planting needs because you've got March futures trading below 280 for the first time in quite a while. While your price is going to be higher than that uh, with your supplier, it's still, this is one of the best prices that we've seen. And we know that OPEC does not like the price this low. We know that China's reopening from their zero COVID restrictions to their new reopening policy is going well. So uh, you have a a little bit of uh, a couple 
uh, bright lights, green shoots at the end of this that we certainly know that crude oil and energy prices can go sharply higher from where we are. So keep an eye on your interest rates, keep an eye on your bins, keep an eye on your fuel to see what it where you can take advantage to help your bottom line. So with that, uh, I'll sign off and I'll send this back over to Bill since this will be in the middle of the big podcast and uh, wish everybody well and happy Valentine's Day. And welcome back to FieldLink. Uh, today on FieldLink, we're going to visit about the impact of biofuels and agriculture and the economy. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Troy Bradenkamp. Troy is the Senior Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, welcome to FieldLink. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, Troy, it's really great to have you joining us today on FieldLink from Washington. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where's home and uh, uh, how, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the great state of Nebraska, um, and it is actually home today. Uh, I uh, work in Washington, D.C., but like uh, almost every congressperson in town, uh, I commute. So um, it's working well. Uh, I get to enjoy, obviously, the good life of uh, Nebraska, but but also get my work done out here in the nation's capital. So um, my background is, is kind of broad. I graduated from the University of, of Nebraska. Uh, from there, I did a little stint with... Uh, with the state of Nebraska doing environmental work. I then jumped into the association work with the Cattlemen's Associations, uh, hooked on with the American Farm Bureau. Uh, spent a tour out here in uh, D.C. in the early 2000s. That's where I got involved in the energy policy of, of this country and, and my first real uh, introduction to ethanol. Uh, from there, I went out and ran the Colorado Farm Bureau for a while. Then I was in uh, part of the rural electric associations, and then I came back to ethanol, uh, running the Nebraska uh, Ethanol Association there before making it a full circle back to Washington, D.C., and I am now part of the Renewable Fuels Association, which is the oldest uh, trade association representing U.S. ethanol producers. Uh, We have members from New York to California and all points in between. We are the uh, producer representatives uh, of the industry. So the, the folks out there grinding the corn, um, running those giant, as I call them, those uh, giant alcohol stills sure. uh, that are turning uh, cornstarch into alcohol. So that's who we represent on a, on a daily basis. Well, Troy, tell, tell us a little bit about a little bit more about the association, the Renewable Fuels Association. How many members do you have and you know what's kind of the geographical stretch from your membership? So we have, uh, we would represent, Bill, more of the small to medium-sized ethanol producers. So those folks uh, who in the early to mid-2000s, those farmers that got together at their coffee shop and said, hey, we should start one of these ethanol plant things that they're talking about. Uh, That's the basis of our uh, membership uh, co-op, you know, model is uh, something that, that we follow. We have uh, 54 uh, members. Now, keep in mind, there are over 200 ethanol plants in the United States. We have 54 members, but many of those members have multiple plants. So we represent 40 to 50 percent of the industry. Um, And and like I said, it's that small to medium sized producer. um, And it's 
and like I said, we also have, you know, we have a member in Western New York and, and we have members in California, but certainly uh, pretty strong within the upper Midwest, uh, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Kansas, Missouri, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, that's yeah. our, that's our bread and butter area. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit uh, about, you know, there's certainly a lot of chatter in the media today. Uh, about biofuels and sustainability. That is the hot, sexy word out there. Tell us our, tell our listeners a little bit about the history and, you know, how we've really kind of gotten to this point in the whole area of biofuels. So we've really come a long way in the last, I would say, 20 to 30 years, you, you, you know, uh, ethanol. Well, what's interesting, Bill, when you mentioned, you know, where, where we came from, we always like to remind people that uh, Henry Ford designed the Model T to run off corn alcohol. Uh, that vehicle was was actually designed to run on alcohol. That was before this little invention called gasoline came along from an oil boom that they discovered down in Texas. Oh. So um, the original vehicles were designed to run on corn alcohol. Today's vehicles certainly can run on uh, corn alcohol, but but we've seen just a huge growth in the industry over the last uh, mostly 20 years. Uh, so the early 2000s, uh, you know, we were hopping along there at about a billion gallons per year uh, of ethanol, just a, a real boutique type of a fuel um, additive. Uh, for most folks. Yep. Um, then in uh, 2005, uh, the energy bill passed that year, and, and that's when I was in town uh, doing my first tour in uh, Washington, D.C. with Farm Bureau. Uh, we passed, as part of that energy bill, a renewable fuel standard. And that renewable fuel standard required um, so much of our liquid fuel or our gas supply to be made up of uh, renewable biofuels. Reason for that primarily was at the time oil was uh, uh, oil production was was down. We were highly dependent upon foreign sources for our oil supply, so we were looking at a way to have more energy security, more national security, and and at the time there was a huge bipartisan uh, push for more biofuels to be put into that mix. So that was the first real shot in the arm for the biofuel industry. Um, it was repassed and, and expanded in 2007. And in 2007 to, to really 2015, we saw just a rapid increase in the use and the production of corn-based ethanol, uh, soy-based biodiesel, uh, all those uh, biofuel crops and, and products really started to grow. Uh, today, uh, we are at... Um, from a corn ethanol perspective, we have those over 200 plants that I mentioned have the ability to produce somewhere between 17.2 and 17.4 billion gallons of ethanol per year. Uh, that equates to roughly 11 to 12% of the entire liquid fuel needs for the United States. Uh, we don't blend that much here at, at home. We're in that just over 10% range, but people can rest assured that pretty much ubiquitous in the United States, 10% of your fuel tank is going to be a corn-based ethanol product, making up uh, that 10% of the 90% gas that is in that tank. So uh, we have grown this uh, industry uh, hugely. Um, it's got a, a mammoth uh, impact to the rural economies. Um, it's got a mammoth impact to the GDP. We have calculated that 
that our GDP contribution is about 34.7% in the year 2020. And if you look at a bushel of, of corn bill, um, we, do a, uh, we do an annual uh, a report called the Ethanol Outlook Report. And uh, we're just about getting ready to publish it for the 2022 year, but for 2021, and you got to think about, you know, where was the price of uh, of a of a bushel of uh, corn back in 2021? Uh, we took an average of four dollars and sixty nine cents for that bushel of corn. Um, of of that, you you had a uh, benefit to that um, bushel of corn of three dollars and forty eight cents coming from the ethanol production. So just a huge impact to the farm gate uh, of every corn farmer in the United States. You, you don't necessarily have to send that ethanol to an ethanol plant um, to begin its processing to, to see that kind of a benefit. So um, really the industry as, as a whole, um, and I know soy has almost the same story from a biodiesel perspective, uh, the biofuels industry in general uh, in the United States has uh, really raised a, a, a lot of uh, uh, income uh, for the average farmer and, and we're happy to do it and, and we think the future's bright in, in terms of what it's gonna do for the next 20 years. Well, it certainly falls a lot into that, I guess that sustainability narrative in a lot of regards. Uh, when you compare, you know, biofuels to, uh, you know, other products, even, even the electrical side of things, I mean, Cobalt's not exactly uh, a renewable product, uh, but but corn is. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, matter of fact, Bill, we are locked into, so through that renewable fuel standard in 2007, we were locked in on the acreage, in the row crop acreage that could be used for biofuels. The number was set uh, within that law. So we have not gone outside of of that, when when people talk about land use changes and 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 indirect land use impact from biofuels, uh, they're certainly not talking about those in the United States. We are actually utilizing the same, actually less, to be honest. We're utilizing less corn acres than were being uh, planted in corn in 2007. Sure. Than what we are in 2022, and we're not only uh, uh, growing more corn, but we're obviously uh, utilizing it to grow the biofuel industry on less acres. And, and that's just a tribute to the American farmer primarily. Uh, you have seen uh, advancements on, on the farm level uh, from, from increased yields, you know, the technology that is being used out, out there today, each and every aspect of that um, is an improvement and it, and it helps us make a low carbon fuel that is gonna be utilized across the, the world. But the beautiful thing about this whole thing is that the corn farmers increasing those yields year over year over year on less inputs and less acreage. Right. And so that is that to me is the definition of sustainability, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, For sure, and that's the story it, that's not yep. being told to the general public. Sir, no. No, you, you, it's hard to get that story out. You know, there's a lot of, of uh, misinformation about biofuels. Certainly, we see it within the ethanol sector all the time. Um, what is interesting is, is these folks that really try and, and uh, c 
conflate or they try and and uh, uh, maybe it's guilt by association, sure. but I can show you reports that have shown American agriculture and U.S. ethanol usage is responsible for deforestation in the Amazon, um, and it's simply not true. There's sure. nothing we have done except grow more corn and produce more ethanol on less acres in the United States than ever before. So, um, but yet those stories are out there. And so that's one of the things that RFA spends a lot of time on is, is debunking a lot of myths out there and making sure everyone has the facts as they're making policy choices uh, for the United States. And, and that's certainly a, a big challenge for me here in the nation's capital. Well, and that's definitely a challenge for, for all of us in agriculture to continue to bring products and services that will increase those yields by, uh, you know, realistic measurements. But, you know, to your point, from 2007 to 22, we've seen that jump and really haven't impacted the acreage at all or, or uh, saw a reduction in, in, in food supplies. That was one of the big chattering points, I think, five, ten years ago, uh, Troy, that, oh, my gosh, if we do all this ethanol, we're going to run out of food. Mm-hmm. That's really not the case. Now, I don't know about you, Bill. I, I don't eat a lot of number two yellow corn, um, but but I know cattle do. And that's the beauty about the ethanol industry is that we're not consuming 40 to 50 percent of, of the corn crop. We're, we're merely starting what I call the value-added manufacturing or manufacturing process is started at an ethanol plant. Uh, by that, I mean all we are really doing is we're grinding that corn, we're putting it into a fermenter, and we are stripping out that starch. So we strip out that starch, we turn that starch into alcohol, um, but there's two byproducts that come along with that. One is corn oil, and we begin to separate out a lot of corn oil now because that corn oil can go into biodiesel and renewable diesel uh, production um, as a pretty it's a renewable, but it's also a pretty affordable feedstock for biodiesel. And then the, the last byproduct is dry distiller's grains. So uh, there's your protein, and all your protein value still gets out to the animal complex. It, it, it goes out to the uh, feed yards. More and more poultry and pork are now starting to be able to utilize uh, distiller's grains within their rations. And, and so there is not a waste product at all within the ethanol production process we're not taking food away from anybody. We're actually uh, enhancing the value of that protein uh, because we have seen where, where uh, cattle in particular being fed on a pretty good ration of dry distillers actually has better, better rates of gain than they do on just regular ground corn. So, so there is something happening um, within that high protein diet that sure. the distillers grains it's a benefit uh, to the to the feed complex. So um, the, it's just a win 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 all the way around. You're absolutely right. When we first started passing this these uh, these legislative standards back in 07, uh, there was a lot of uh, food versus fuel, and oh, right. we're we're gonna you know run out of food if if we um, start making too much ethanol. That is, there's nothing further from the truth. It hasn't happened, and it won't happen because that's just not the way this this process works. Troy, you know, clearly a lot of changes in the last 30 or so years and and uh, around uh, renewable fuels. Uh, but we've, and, and a lot of great technologies happened and, and y'all have done a phenomenal job, but 
what are some other byproducts that, hey, you know, the average consumer just kind of overlooks that uh, biofuels are actually adding to our lives on a daily basis? So one of the things, and we say this a lot, Bill, uh, everything that can be made at a petrochemical refinery can't be made at a biorefinery. So, so once you get down to that basic element of ethanol, um, you can really go a lot of different directions. And even some of those uh, feed uh, by, byproducts that I was mentioning, the, the protein and the distiller's grade. So, so we're seeing a ton of, of uh, advancements being made. And really what's driving it is the low carbon uh, quality of, of ethanol. Um, if I took an ethanol out of a standard dry mill today uh, and compare it to a gallon of conventional gasoline, there's about uh, a 40% reduction or 60% or, or of the carbon intensity in that gallon of gasoline compared to convent, or there's a 60% uh, carbon intensity yeah. in that gallon of ethanol compared to a gallon of conventional gasoline. So that 40% reduction right off the top, that number continues to drop. Uh, our carbon intensity in today's ethanol um, is reaching 50% on average. It's going to go lower and lower and lower. Uh, Renewable Fuel Association members have committed to a 70% reduction in carbon intensity by 2030 and a net zero or carbon negative ethanol production by 2050. And that is opening a ton of doors for these different technological uses for ethanol. Uh, there will be a day, uh, maybe not in our lifetime, when the combustible engine will be replaced by electric vehicles. But I think ethanol has a huge promising future because of that low carbon quality uh, we're going to find other uses for ethanol outside of a fuel tank. Um, still plenty of fuel to be made right. and a lot of uses there. But but from plastics, uh, when you can get into renewable plastics, when you can get into chemicals, uh, like I said, we make a ton of chemicals. And from chemicals, you, you make uh, different products from cosmetics to everything uh, every single one of those can be made at a biorefinery that could be made at a petrochemical refinery. So, so we're opening doors all, all the time. That ethanol plant out there is kind of a uh, nerve center, and it's gonna, there's going to be associated businesses, I see, in the future coming off of that where you're going to have a uh, plastics plant or, you, or you're going to have a high-protein plant where you're making – um, you're taking that distillers and you're enhancing it to, to be a 50% protein product that's going to be used for, for fish food or, or even for, you know, some, some human food, you know, quality. So, so there's just options out there that we haven't even thought of yet that are going to come along because of that low carbon quality and the continuous advancements being made within this industry today. Wow evolution going there. You know, Troy, with all of these changes in, in, in the consumption and the utilization of biofuels, you know, you touched on it a little bit earlier. What are some of the financial impacts to growers at the farm gate from your perspective? Well, like I said, um, in 2021, just from the, the ethanol production, um, the, the, the value in a bushel of corn was $3.42 per bushel. Sure. Um, we see that going up. We, we, we see the, um, the, uh, 
advancements that are being made in technology on our end will eventually uh, be a premium being paid to the farmer on their end. Um, and it really goes back to the whole low carbon, carbon intensity aspects. Um, I can take corn ethanol today in an ethanol plant today and through what I told you about our CI reductions down to even a carbon capture. Uh, there's a lot of talk about pipelines and, and, and bottling this CO2 up and then sending it up to like North Dakota. Uh, and we have a lot of plants that are starting to participate in those kinds of programs. That takes another 25% of our, um, or 25 CI points off of our uh, score. But it really gets us, you know, not near that net zero we want to be at. That's gonna happen at the farm gate. Okay. That's gonna happen down on the farm fields. Um, and we're seeing it today, just A, getting accurate modeling that will give the farmers the credit for the great job that they're doing today is one of those things. But as they adopt new technology and as they lower their inputs where they're uh, really putting minimal amounts of uh, fertilizer on or precision agricultural practices uh, where it's, it's uh, precision water, precision nutrients, um, where it's no-till or minimum-till regimens, uh, all those things add to our reduction in carbon intensity that then from a value chain perspective, if I'm a farmer utilizing all these uh, practices uh, and I can prove through modeling or through some sort of certification that, that my corn has got a 20 CI, say, um, I've got... I've, I've got ethanol plants that want that corn, that want that low carbon sure. corn, because they're gonna then value add that through their process and then sell it to a person in California who is trying to meet a low carbon fuel standard. That's, that's how this is gonna work. And as you value add that carbon quality through that process, the farmers that are doing everything they can to lower that carbon intensity are going to be rewarded uh, financially for that. And that's how it should be. Absolutely should be. Uh, if we're going to go to decarbonizing the economy, they've got to be part of it and they're going to be the the, the net benefit of, of that from a financial perspective or else it just won't work. So, so those are some things I think at the farm level that are really going to uh, make them a huge part of what we're trying to do. Um, and it all needs to work together to benefit everyone uh, for it to really come to fruition. Yeah. And that whole area is definitely evolving on a day to by day basis. And mm -hmm. you know, there's still a lot of mystery out there. How do we figure it out? And yep. I think the good news is, as you touched on it earlier, Troy, growers and, and, and in our case, ag retailers and folks in the industry have been doing a darn good job for a lot of years. We just haven't really calculated it and maybe told our story. Um, and, and now it's time to, you know, gather all that information up, and do exactly what you just said. Get get reimbursed for some of the good things that we've been doing. They absolutely should be. I mean, I you know we you and I both grew up on farms, and, and there's you know it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to employ practices and 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 capital costs uh, for farming practices that don't make economic sense. And so it absolutely has to make economic sense for them to adopt some of the farming practices we need to see in order for us to get to our net zero ethanol. And I think we're ready and, and, and happy to help them do that and pay them uh, as they should be paid 
for those kinds of uh, practices. Sure. Well, Troy, you mentioned earlier, you spend a lot of your time in Washington on, on Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, there's chatter. It's that time of year again, or that time, I guess, with the Farm Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, uh, what kind of, I guess, chatter is happening on the Hill right now as it relates to renewable fuels and the Farm Bill? Well, certainly, you know, from a renewable fuels perspective, we will be participating in Farm Bill development. You know, it is a Farm Bill year. Um, it's a different uh, game in town with a uh, split Congress. Um, with the Republicans taking over the House, um, it is going to make things different, certainly, than it would have been with a farm bill having the same party in charge of all uh, aspects of that development. But we're going to be plugged in. I, I mean, there are things that are happening within that farm bill. The conservation title mm-hmm. is is one that, that we will have an impact on uh, because it impacts our, our business. The energy title of the farm bill is another one. There's a bio... Uh, um, there's a bio-based products uh, uh, provision uh, within the energy title that is somewhat something that we think could be expanded to help in some of these areas that, that we talked about where we're making different products uh, coming out of uh, the ethanol process. So, so there's going to be a lot of farm bill work done. Uh, it is one of the most passed bills um, that Congress will need to pass. Uh, we, we think it'll happen this year. If not, it will certainly have to be passed next year. Um, so it's going to have to be dealt within this Congress. Other things that we're looking at, though, is year-round E15. Uh, this is a, um, this is a, a quagmire, <laughs> sure. um, I, I, I think is not a strong enough word. Uh, it, it's, it's just silly that, that we're having to do this. Uh, but uh, E15 is a product that is getting more and more traction, that is becoming more and more attractive because it's typically priced anywhere from 15 to 25 cents a gallon less than its E10 uh, counterpart at a pump, if, if you can find it. Sure. Um, one of the problems is it doesn't, it doesn't uh, have the, the same uh, statutory regulatory protections that E10 has. And so because we haven't got that done yet from a, from a statutory perspective, um, there are, un, un, unless there are emergency waivers offered for this summer, um, E15 producers will have to not sell E15 uh, during the summer driving season, which is June 1st through September 15th. We're trying to avoid that. That sends a bad market signal uh, to those retailers that are out there wanting to sell more E15 and wanting to adopt uh, uh, that that technology. So we're going to be working hard at the uh, at the legislative level to make sure that we can have year-round E15 for 2023. Uh, we're going to be working at the regulatory level, down at the EPA level, to make sure that there there was a group of eight states, eight Midwest states, that opted out of the uh, Clean Air Act waiver process so that they could sell year-round E15. Okay. Um, and, and then we're obviously going to be working on the White House. Uh, the Biden administration is going to have to step up and once again uh, offer us some sort of an emergency waiver so that those 3,000-plus pumps out there that are offering E15 and a huge savings to the U.S. consumers that can find that product, uh, we got to make sure that they're able to have that this summer 
because uh, most assuredly uh, gas prices are going to rise through this spring and, and probably hit maybe not the same levels that they hit last summer, but but they will be much higher than they are right now. So so that's a big issue for us from a policy perspective. Um, and, and, and just keep in mind, I told you that 10 percent of uh, all fuel is is ethanol today. Right. If we can move that E10 number to E15, uh, we're talking about a 50% increase in the amount of ethanol with, within our U.S. fuel supply, but but obviously we, we move to a 15% mix of uh, ethanol to gasoline across the board, and that's going to that's gonna float a lot of vessels uh, within the ag economy if we can make that happen long term. That's why year-round E15 is so important. And, and Troy, you know, uh, forgive me, but from a technology standpoint, E15 – it's it's proven out. It's not like the new kid on the block. It's been around a while. It's it's what the EPA refers to as substantially similar to E10, uh, and it is. It it's it. There's no equipment change that needs to happen. There is no uh, your ninety-seven uh, percent of all vehicles. It's got to be two thousand one and newer. But that's ninety-seven percent of all vehicles on the road today are two thousand one or newer can utilize E15. Uh, this is merely a, uh, a a mistake made in the 2007 energy bill okay. where it just said a reed vapor pressure waiver was set for E10. It didn't say E15, it didn't say E20 or E30, it said E10. Okay. And the refiners out there are holding us to statutory language. They're not letting you expand out of that. That's why we need the statutory fix uh, the legislative remedy to get this done permanently. But until then, we've got to have some regulatory relief to make sure that E15 is available to consumers this summer. But just, just you know, okay, the dumb farm kid here, uh, just kind of logically thinking through this, if we were to transition to the stroke of a pen to E15, doesn't that accomplish a lot of the green initiative that we're uh, obviously hearing about in Washington. It certainly, it certainly would. That that's that's not even a dumb farm kid con. <laughs> that's just common sense. Wow. Um, you 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 would. You absolutely would. All the benefits of ethanol that I've been talking about. Uh, you would be adding fifty percent more of those benefits to a gallon of gasoline by going from E ten to E fifteen. You could do that overnight. You could do that tomorrow. Um, it would bump our uh, our ethanol production. If, if we were to go to an E15 standard, we would add about three and a half to four billion gallons of ethanol. Um, we already got about a billion and a half to two billion uh, gallon uh, excess capacity that we're using for for exports. But but certainly we could blend that here. Plus, as you know, farmers and anyone in the Midwest, if they're given a, a goal. Uh, they will blow through that goal in, in a heartbeat. So I have no uh, uh, qualms to, to think that, that the industry would not be able to, to meet uh, their, their new demand uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, and so that, that would be a, a wise move on all parts. It would help the Biden administration meet some of their environmental goals much sooner. Um, and it's a win-win-win all the way around. So that's, that's the message that we'll be selling uh, to them uh, in order to make sure that they help us get through this 2023 uh, summer driving season and then find a permanent solution for E15 uh, year-round after that. Well, Troy, you know, certainly um, 
it feels like a lot of good things are on the horizon in the biofuel industry. Um, you know, what what kind of expansion or future development uh, are you projecting at this point in time for the industry? Well, I talked a little bit about what happens if E15 uh, year round gets adopted nationwide. You know, that's a three to four billion gallon per year. Uh, so that's a 25% build out over where we're at today. Um, that's more corn grind. Uh, that's just a win-win-win all the way around. Uh, but but really, I, I think we're seeing a lot of advancements as we lower that carbon intensity. We're seeing all kinds of folks come to us wanting to utilize ethanol outside of the light-duty vehicle uh, gas tank and put it elsewhere. Um, sustainable aviation fuel. If you haven't heard of that term uh, and you're in the ethanol world, you've been living under a rock sure. because um, the hard to electrify spaces, uh, uh, heavy duty trucks, heavy duty off-road, uh, there's technology out there today that could take a diesel engine uh, and convert it to an E100, uh, all ethanol burning technology. And it's a pretty simple retrofit to the current diesel engine. So we could be running John Deere tractors. We could be running over the road trucking uh travel tra travel tractors off of uh, ethanol instead of diesel. Uh, huge opportunities, like I said, within sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, you can take alcohol to jet fuel. So, so those concepts are certainly being developed. That's why I say um, I think some of our best years are ahead of us. I, I think we're going to see a pretty uh, rapid ex expansion. Uh, if the policies in, D in, in this town marry up to the realities of what we see out there on the ground in the rest of the country. Um, it, it's a pretty bright future for biofuels, uh, corn ethanol in particular. Sure. Um, and we just are trying everything we can to make sure the policy is, is, is right to make sure that happens. Well, and, 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 and to add to that, I mean, just sitting back listening to you, Troy, talk about the excitement, the energy around diesels, and trucks and tractors and, you know, larger pieces of equipment for moving things. You know, we don't hear about that a lot. We hear about Teslas and cars all the time. But but as we look into this space, boy, that's an exciting area that uh, is, is ahead of us. And, and you talk about fuel security, uh, national security. Mm -hmm. We're producing our own energy then. Yep. Here's one for you. Um, ethanol to electrons. So... Um, and I, and I hate to even mention this because it just sounds silly, but uh, stay with me here. Um, you have a battery electric vehicle that needs charging, right? Uh, electric chargers, fast chargers, hardwired anywhere uh, are about $150,000 per charger. And a lot of the utilities just don't want to expend that kind of cost in order to put hard chargers in. Concepts out there right now are uh, remote or um, mobile charging stations. Those mobile charging stations would be run by a generator and that generator could be running on uh, low carbon or net zero ethanol. So okay. here you are, you pull up to your mobile charging station, you turn it on, the motor in the background kicks on, it's running on E100 and it's charging your Tesla. That's the kind of 
jumping out of the gas tank and moving into other uses uh, we see on the horizon. And it's only because we have this low carbon, moving lower uh, in carbon intensity type of a renewable biofuel that is just opening a lot of doors for us, even within this current climate of all EVs all the time. Sure. Uh, they've got some huge issues to, to, to overcome. We could be part of that solution for them. So, so again, sky's the limit, Bill, in, yeah. in terms of where biofuels, I think, are headed. Wow. And that definitely, that model that you just described could certainly be a stopgap for uh, many of the infrastructure issues we have, especially with electricity today. And maybe that biofuel solution and generators is a true option here in the near future. It's being piloted in Europe. I know we've gotten calls from Florida uh, for, for these mobile charging stations that can run on all ethanol. Wow. And uh, our home state of Nebraska is looking at some pilots to do just that. That's exciting stuff, Troy. Troy Bradenkamp, I want to thank you for joining us here on FieldLink, joining us uh, today from Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, probably heading to Washington soon here. But uh, Troy Bradenkamp, uh, the Government and Public Affairs of Senior Vice President for the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, thanks for joining us here on FieldLink. Bill, great to uh, spend some time with you and, and catch up. And, and, and just I want everyone to know that none of this is possible without the American farmer. And and what we're doing is just taking your good work and, and trying to add value to that. And so uh, thank you, farmers, for what you do. Uh, it's been a great partnership, and, and we look for many more uh, great partnering years to come. Thanks for joining us, Troy. Thanks for joining us on FieldLink. If you're planning on attending the Mid-South Gin Show in Memphis, be sure to stop at the Helena booth and get your VIP ticket for one of the commodity marketing sessions on Friday, March 24th with Jody Lawrence. Jody will be having a morning and afternoon session, so be sure to visit with your Helena representative or stop at the booth for your VIP ticket to join Jody Lawrence for his valuable market insight. And if you have not already done so, please subscribe to FieldLink on your favorite platform so you don't miss out on news and information that will help you produce a more profitable crop.